Charles V of Spain was on a very steep learning curve. Even though he was only 20 years old, he had just been voted as the new emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, including his governance of Spain. He now had the responsibilities for a vast domain that included modern-day Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, the Czech Republic, Austria, Switzerland, northern Italy, and South America. Now, Charles had prepared for these responsibilities for his entire life, so he felt as, as ready as he could have been as he approached his first major meeting with the leaders of the empire, set for the city of Worms in the Rhineland of Germany. Still, he knew the princes, electors, dukes, and other leaders uh, would be watching him closely for any missteps as he sought to guide the empire through the treacherous terrain of medieval European politics. Treacherous barely describes the complexity of this situation Charles had inherited from his grandfather. The Pope was no friend, having done everything in his power to deny Charles the position of emperor. The German princes were fractitious, squabbling, even while the Turks were threatening the eastern edges of the empire. And his own Spain, the commoners, were rising up in revolt against the nobility. Finally, there was this little matter regarding the German monk Martin Luther. Although Luther's teachings were popular with the people, Charles was confident everybody would fall in line behind the Pope declaring Luther a heretic. Still, to calm the leadership of the German states and to finally get them working together against the Turks, Charles agreed to add a quick hearing for Luther at the very end of the Diet of Worms to give Luther one final chance to recant before he was declared a heretic. The stage was set for one of the most dramatic moments of the Reformation. I'm Mike Yagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Now, Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the review of the history and content of documents from the Lutheran Reformation, all of a nice cold beer. Uh, in our last episode, we talked a little bit about Desit Romanum. Oh, you know, before we get started, actually, uh, one thing I wanted to come to an agreement with you on, I was talking to Maria about this. Should, what's the proper way to say Verms? Verms. Or, is it Verms? Yeah, so yeah, the, the W would have a V. Sound. Okay. So worms. But it's spelled worms. It, yes. And in, in English, we would say we worms. We would say worms. Uh, worms. It is an interesting thing to wonder when you're speaking of a city in a foreign country, do you adopt the adaptation of, do you adopt the pronunciation of that foreign country or do you do it as people would in America? So like Mexico or Mexico. Yeah. You know, do, do we say worms or do we say worms? For the purpose of this podcast... I think we'll save worms because I, th- I just don't want to think about worms. <laughs> and, and, and you know, one of the things that, you know, you know uh, uh, I was actually thinking, you know, do we want to say worms or worms or, worms, you know, yes. or, or, you know, worms, you know, and so, you know, we had to figure out one way we're going to say it. So I, I'm glad we're going to go with worms because that's how I said it in the opening there. So we'll, we'll stick with that. There we will. So in our last episode, episode 20, we looked at Desit Romanum, the papal bull that finally excommunicated Martin Luther. It was published by the Pope on January 3rd, 1521. Now, this was the last papal bull that was written to all of Western Christianity and the first papal bull that was ignored by most of it. Now, the emphasis of it it being written to all of Western Christendom is because after this, there is schism in the church. There's the, the split between who is living under the authority of the Pope and who isn't because this Diet of Worms is going to place Martin Luther into conflict with the words of the Pope and... Martin Luther is going to stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Now the thing is, is that this is, uh, this, this, this particular, uh, papal bull was better, better written, better conceived 
than the the old the first one, Exerge Domine. Yeah, Exerge Domine was largely uh, a warning: keep on this path, and we're going to declare you a heretic. But it was not really defining the path, and it didn't really engage any of the argument in Scripture. And now, Desit Romanum, previous episode, episode 20, listen to that, and you'll see how it helps kind of define why the Diet of Worms includes a hearing on Martin Luther. Some other things we've looked at. So let's just put ourselves into a little bit of a timeline, because Diet of Worms is taking place in the spring of 1521. Okay, and then back, let's go back, uh, back in the June of 1520, the Pope released Exerge Domine. Uh, that was, like we said, it was a threat of excommunication. And at the same time, 1520, the, the Turks are coming up the Danube to attack the eastern edges of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, about that same time, all this is up, within like a week or two weeks, Luther finished his first draft of open letter to the Christian nobility. That was all happened in June of 1520. This is all happening all at the same time. And then he dated its publication for August. Right. That's when it was officially released to the world, but there was no changes. There were mm-hmm. no changes between June and August. Also in 1520, Karl von Miltitz has created the impression that there is still room for negotiation by meeting with Luther and asking him to release a conciliatory letter to the Pope, which Luther did along with the release of freedom of the Christian. Now that gets us back to the freedom of the Christian. A couple episodes ago, we talked about freedom of the Christian being the present. And then there was a letter, the conciliatory letter, which was at the very beginning of it. That was the, that was like the, 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 the letter or the, the card that comes with the, with the gift. And so it was, so there we are. We're sort of. And also in 1520, you wrote the Babylonian captivity on the sacraments. That's right. And so, uh, open letter, uh, open letter to the Christian nobility, Babylonian captivity and freedom of the Christian. We spent a lot of time talking through all three of those documents. Um, and I think those three documents do a lot to explain who Luther is in 1520 and why he has the confidence to be able to enter into this conversation at the Diet of Worms, which in the end isn't going to be a conversation. But he has established that his faith is built on the Word of God. Yeah, and so what we've got here is, you know, these these you know two streams of thought, two ideas on church and the role of church in people's lives. You got the Pope saying, "Do it because I said so," and you got Luther saying, "I'm going to do what I do because the Word of God says so." And they're coming to a uh, everything's coming to a head at the Diet of Worms. So and so now let's talk about some of the characters. Frederick the Wise. Well, he wasn't fooled by any of this. This is he sees all these pieces moving, but he sees what's coming, and he suspected that the Pope was going to declare Luther a heretic soon. So he wrote in the fall of 1520 to the emperor, requesting that Luther be given a hearing. What was really interesting about that was that back, if you go back to when we talked about the election capitulation. That's episode 11. Oh, then what ended up happening was uh, Frederick the Wise maneuvered with the emperor to get an agreement in there that nobody could be declared an outlaw without a hearing in Germany. And so this would be what what Frederick is trying to do is he's trying to get Luther a hearing in Germany to, to before he gets declared an outlaw at the Diet of Worms. So this letter that comes in the fall of 1520 doesn't mention the election capitulation. That's... It could be uh, because it just doesn't need to be said that Frederick <laughs> the Wise assumes Charles V honors his agreements and remembers his word. Yeah, and that, you know these are these are highly political people. They they're very subtle. They you know he's maybe he doesn't want to play that card just now. You know, there's tact in knowing when to 
um, demand something and when to request something. Right. And another one is maybe there was some other reason. You know, who who knows that maybe maybe something happened where the where uh, Frederick re- recognized that this was going to be a huge problem for Charles, and if he brought it up, it would be. You know, who knows? Who knows what's going on? So, so November twenty eighth, November twenty eighth, fifteen twenty. Charles agreed that Luther would be given a hearing at the diet scheduled to be held in the city of Worms in early fifteen twenty one, as long as Luther didn't publish anything in the meantime. Now we're going to use this term "diet" a lot, and "diet" is is it's sort of a term we're not really we don't use much. And it's a Latin based word describing just assembly. Okay, so it's sort of like a congress, right? It's mm-hmm. it's like you have all the high-ranking people all get together and they're coming to some agreements. So that's um, so the now it's sort of surprising that that given everything that's going on, that the emperor agreed to give Luther this hearing. It's kind of though going to be a hearing on Friday after four o'clock. So it's that's in terms of the scheduling, which is going to largely come up in part two of our conversation about the Diet of Worms, it's meant to be this thing that no one really notices. It's in kind of a smaller room. No one's going to notice it. And then, well, listen to the next episode to hear how people do indeed notice it. So, um, and then there's a couple of reasons why people think, you know, that that Charles actually did allow or extend this invitation to Luther. Yeah, because so extending an invitation to a hearing in Germany is a challenge to the Pope. Because the Pope has said, Charles, declare him a heretic. Uh, I've declared him a heretic. You declare him an outlaw. I did my job. I declared him a heretic. Now you do your job. Declare him an outlaw. But now Charles isn't always feeling like he should do the Pope's bidding. He knew the Pope wanted Francis I of to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. And, and, and Francis and the Pope, they're both with the Medici family. So they're, they, they feel like they can work. Going back to the election capitulation, we talked a lot about the role of family in, in medieval politics. And the Medicis, they sort of hung together, right? And so, and so there's also the issue of Charles being the emperor and the king of Spain. And he has the Pope surrounded, which he wants to keep some tension with the Pope. Because he wants to keep the Pope kind of on his toes. Right. And and so if you think about, don't forget, the Pope was really in his own little king. He has his own little kingdom. Yeah, from the donation of Constantine, which later turns out to be a forgery of a document, uh, the Pope lays claim to largely the center of Italy. Yeah, a huge, As huge, a political huge leader. Right. Now, we also have to remember that Frederick the Wise, going back to... The man the, asking for the invite for the hearing. Right. Going back to episode 11 and the election capitulation, we talked about the politics that went around that. And part of that politics was that Frederick, the Pope, wanted Frederick to be the next emperor. If and, it wasn't Francis, Frederick was a good choice for the Pope. But Frederick was, even though he was asked, refused and put his support behind Charles. And this, of course, saved Charles a lot of headache. But Charles owes Frederick the Wise some favors. Right. Um, And so he doesn't want to start out his rule as emperor by ignoring the request of an influential prince of Germany. Right. Now, so all of this is going on. The the emperor finally, the emperor extends Frederick or extends Luther an invitation at the request of Frederick. But on the same day that the emperor extended Luther a hearing at the Diet, there was a burning of Luther's books in Mainz. And why this is important is because it puts into tension um, how much safety is there for Luther. Right. Now, we have to sort of go back in time, about 100 years, 
to the whole story of John Huss. So John Huss, a Bohemian, is invited to the Council of Constance. Uh, the the king assures him that he has safe conduct. Uh, That's Sigmund, I think, or something. Sigismund like of Hungary, who was the king of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, an earlier version of the emperor. Uh, and then when John Huss arrived at the Council of Constance, the clergy threw Huss in prison. And the king objects. The clergy, though, convinces the king that he is not responsible for any promises of safe conduct he's made to a heretic, because a heretic really is of nobody. He's, he doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. Right. And so the, the king backs off on his pr- promise of safe conduct. So then the clergy condemn Huss to be burned at the stake, and then the secular authorities carried out the sentence. Right. And so Frederick the Wise, hearing that the books are being burned in Mainz, is concerned that the same thing could happen to Luther. Yeah, so he doesn't want to have the clergy acting in one direction and the secular authorities acting in another direction. Because it was the clergy in Mainz that burned the books. Exactly. So if you get the the hand of greeting from the king and the hand of opposition from the clergy, this is in fact uh, imitation, not an imitation... uh, it's a, a it's mirror a, yeah. of what happened at the Council of Constance. And, and so so Frederick sort of sees this. And what I'll tell you, if I was Frederick, I, this is an opportunity for him to really lock down a much better invitation. Promise of safety. Right. So Frederick declines the emperor's invitation. The very invitation Frederick asked to get, he now declines. And he asked the emperor to make it absolutely clear that he would... Uh, that the emperor would take full responsibility for Luther's safety and not allow the church to run roughshod over any discussions. Now, the, the, at the same time... This Things is, are, this is this real is, life. Things are, it's yeah. not like a movie where you get a whole bunch of people doing one thing and nothing else is happening in the world while you're doing that one thing. Yeah, this real is, life, things are always going on at the same time. So once, once the Pope hears that the emperor has extended an invitation to Martin Luther, he gets all bent out of shape. And so, so he's upset that the emperor is working at cross currents to the Pope's declaration that Luther is a heretic, and and the, and the Pope sends Aleander. To so go Aleander and John Eck were the two people that were originally supposed to distribute Exerge Domine around Germany, and so now Aleander is there, and he's going to appear before the emperor, and he tells the emperor a few things. One is remember. The Pope has doctrinal objections to Luther. So the questions against Luther are not politics, they're theology. And so Aleander is essentially reminding the emperor, the issues that are uh, before us concerning Luther do not concern you as an emperor, because they're about theology. Right. And so you don't have the authority to say Luther's not a heretic. So Aleander points out that the Pope wasn't alone in his rejection of Luther either. And he reminds the emperor that Luther's books were burned in Cologne and in Mainz. Finally, he points out that Luther was a heretic. Um, Who just hasn't been officially, officially declared. declared one. Yeah. Because and, it's not... Exerge Domine was distributed. And then we'll, we'll get the Deset Romanum that comes out in January. So now from the Pope's perspective, he had graciously given Luther 60 days... Uh, to recant his heretical teachings. And that 60-day period ran out on December the 10th. And now Luther is a heretic, an outlaw deserving of death, and we just need the rubber stamp. That's what Aleander is telling Charles V. We just need your stamp. And this now, it's not like Charles V was the first emperor to be asked to, you know, uh, uh, execute a heretic. 
this had been going on for you know hundreds of years, and the and state there's precedent that said that you should do what you ought to, you're being told to do here. Right. So it is the role of the church to declare someone a heretic, and it was the role of the state to carry out the physical punishment. Right. And so you know what what Aleander's argument was. Listen, you know you know he's going to be he's he's a heretic. We basically we have called him a heretic and exerge domine. Uh, he's, he hasn't recanted. He had till December 10th. All we need is the final word from the Pope. You need to be prepared to, to execute him when the word comes down from the Pope. So the emperor agrees with Aleander and he rescinds the offer to give Luther a hearing, which has already been declined by Frederick de Wise. Yeah, but he didn't know that. No. The, the emperor, so this is all. So they both happening. pull back from having this hearing. Right. Now let's move to January 3rd, 1521. Luther is formally declared a heretic in the bull Decet Romanum. Although the bull had been signed, it had not yet been published and distributed. And one of the first copies is sent to Aleander. Now, and Aleander's job is what? His job is to actually announce it to the Diet and tell them that Luther is now officially a heretic. But Aleander doesn't want to do that. This is an interesting point, Mike, that you found in your research, that Aleander does not want to release the bull to the entire Diet at Worms because... The Diet also excommunicates the humanist Ulrich von Hutten. Right. Now, Ulrich von Hutten is supported by the violent knight Franz von Sickingen. And we're going to talk about him because he's got uh, 7,000 that have approached one city, 20,000 that have approached another city. Um, and if Aleander speaks out loud the excommunication of the humanist Ulrich von Hutten, there could be a revolt in Worms. So he tries to get Luther outlawed as a heretic without having to publicly reference the bull so as then not to have to publicly announce Ulrich von Hutten as a heretic. Yeah. So, so It would have been neater for Aleander if there maybe had two separate bulls, one that had... Yeah, one that had Luther and one that had uh, had von Hutten. But he's got to work with the paper that's in front of him. So, so Aleander is sending notes back to the Pope saying, hey, can you change this thing? Because I don't, I don't want to work with this I one. I don't want to work with this yeah, one. Hot potato, hot potato. Yeah, hot, and, and so he's he's really in a pickle, and he decides he's going to get Luther outlawed without having to reference... Uh, Using the political maneuvering of the diet. Now, Luther, he doesn't know that there is Desit Romanum out there. He knows about Exerge Domina, uh, which he had burned on December 11th or 10th. What, something like that, something yeah. Something at the Ulster Gate in Wittenberg. And he wrote to Staupitz, Up to this point, we have played around, but the matter has now become serious. Now, he went on to com comment that there was no way that this was going to be resolved except by God himself and most likely... On the last day, the the day of judgment, the eschaton. So, so just the day before, or just before the diet starts, Aleander asks the emperor to hand Luther over to the church authorities. So the emperor said he needed to wait to hear from the Archbishop of Mainz, um, who is also then the primate of the church in Germany. Right, and he also wants to listen. He wants to speak with Frederick the Wise. So he's creating some space. Yeah, he's creating a reason why he can't honor. Aleander's request yet. He waits for the Archbishop of Mainz, and he's also waiting for Frederick de Wise. So he finally, Frederick arrives, and and what what happens is he gets, he, Frederick gets Charles to take full responsibility for Luther's safe conduct. Now, Charles didn't make clear how he was going to take responsibility. He was just going to be the guy in charge rather than handing everything over to the Pope. So there is 
some reason for hope. If Charles has a voice and isn't just a puppet for the Pope, then maybe there's something to talk about. Okay. Let's take our beer break now. All right. So today's beer is No Problems Session IPA from Perrin Brewery. So it is a silver uh, can uh, with blue it's like uh, the, trim. It's like the, the Detroit Lions, that Honolulu blue. Yes. Uh, so it's... Uh, easy to find on a shelf. Easy to find on a shelf. Now, this Perrin Brewery is really, I thought it was interesting. I had never heard of Perrin Brewery before. This is, this was, this was new to me. Um, but what was interesting about it, this is, uh, a, a brewery that started out, the guy who started it, Randy Perrin, I think. He's only a, founded in 2012. And he, he's, he claims in an interview, he said he was a, a light, light bud, a bud drinker, light drinker, a bud light drinker, which is, but he wanted to, he wanted to go out and he wanted to make some sort of beer that was going to compete with the big boys with these. And so he was actually looking to make, uh, something like the, a light beer. But they put quite a bit of money into the opening. And so when they opened, they were the fifth largest brewery in the state of Michigan. And uh, James Haney, an engineer who worked at the brewery, said, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> so so what ends up happening is they 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 run for a few years and then uh, then really Randy Perrin you know, backs out of the business and it sells to Oscar Blues, which is a, another brewery that's based, I think, in Colorado. Uh, and And so they take over. And this is, I mean, they bring their, their, their management expertise into this brewery. And now they're sold in all 50 states. They, or they have distribution networks in all 50 states. $60 million. Unbelievable. For 2012, just starting, just $60 million. Unbelievable. So they're, they're doing great. Now, one of the things that was really interesting about this was that they were, if not the first ones to invent a grapefruit IPA, they were one of the first. And, and so there's, there's different arguments on, some people say 2012, there was a company that invented the, the grapefruit IPA, uh, Perrin Brewery also came up with a grapefruit IPA at about the same time. I, I had a grapefruit IPA and I don't remember whose it was, but I had a grapefruit IPA a few years ago, or maybe eh, I'm going to say about a, about a year ago. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I looked at the label. It's like grapefruit IPA. I, I, I don't know. You know, I tried it. It was delicious. I think the tartness of it. It is good. It was. Have you ever had a grapefruit IPA? I have. I, I was totally surprised. I, I never would have thought grapefruit and beer worked well together. An IPA with all the bitterness of the mm -hmm. of the beer working with the grapefruit. Oh, it was. It really took the. It gave a nicer finish to that yeah. to the to the IPA. It was. It delicious. reminds me a little bit of the Radlers uh, that would get in Germany, where you would get a, a, a beer and then they would pour in like an orange drink or a a lemonade drink. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. And so you could get that mix. Yeah. Now in America, you'd refer that to like as a shandy. Yeah. And in Germany, they'd call it a Rattler. So, so this is a good beer. Uh, distributed around 50 uh, states. And uh, then they, they comment, it's better to get bought out by um, Oscar than by Anheuser Busch because they're going to um, have a high expectation of honoring that small brewery kind of feel to it yeah yeah now the the one of the things that, that they they just released and i was actually thinking about if i could find it i would have bought it was this no rules vietnamese porter uh that that's a, there's a lot of talk around that unfortunately the the vietnamese porter is only available in michigan so you know the folks outside of michigan won't be able to get it but there's a lot of a lot of good talk about this vietnamese porter 
that so, uh, parent made with a up. turbinado sugar, cinnamon, coconut, aged for months in used bourbon barrels. Uh, tough to find even after it's released to stores because they will decide on their own limits of how much they'll sell. It's a 15% alcohol by volume. Yeah, yeah, that's a little... That's I think a, some stores are reluctant to sell that kind of beer, maybe. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty potent beer. Now the, I have to um, serve it in like a sniffer. Yeah, yeah actually, they, they do do that. You'll sometimes see these beers that are, are served in... The, the, the Triple Bock, the um, Sam Adams Triple Bock, comes in little 8-ounce bottles, you know, and they're, that's a very powerful beer. It's good beer, though. Um, well, well, that ends our beer break, and now we are at the first date of the Diet of Worms, January 28th, 1521, and the emperor has taken responsibility for Luther. Now, Luther's not in Worms yet. That's not going to happen yet. They're still negotiating to happen because Frederick the Wise is lobbying hard for this hearing for Luther to take place and figuring out what are the terms for the hearing. Well, and this is this is the deal, right? You, you have an invitation, but what happens when Luther gets here? And so now Frederick is negotiating that part of the discussion. Now, he's lobbying hard, like like Evan said. He's lobbying hard that there's an actual hearing, that, that Luther actually has a chance to make his position known. Now, Frederick would say that he wasn't personally qualified to make a decision on issues of faith, but he demanded that there would be a hearing. Frederick would say that if Luther was properly condemned, Luther said he would be, uh, Frederick said he would be the first to do his duty as a German prince and condemn Luther. Now, the key word is Frederick would say that if Luther was properly condemned. Now, some people will have the definition of properly as were all the rules followed. For Frederick, that word properly, is that Luther could only be condemned if his teachings were shown to be heretical according to Scripture. Right. So, so it's a you know Frederick is very, very uses very distinctive, very uh, fine those fine distinctions that are so we always talk about in the Catholic uh, theology. Frederick does that same thing. He parses his language. He's very careful about exactly what he says and how he puts things. And so here we are, here we have, you know, Frederick playing that same political game, making sure that, yeah, I'll be the first one in line to, to burn Luther at the stake if he's properly condemned. Now, Aleander, working for the Pope, does not want this hearing to take place because the existence of this hearing means that someone else besides the Pope can act as a judge in matters of faith. Aleander is by standing objecting to this hearing, saying that the emperor and these princes in Germany do not have the standing to judge on matters of faith. Of course, Luther would disagree based on his open letter to the Christian nobility yeah, the in the priesthood of all believers. You know, and so it's, yeah, exactly. So, so we have this, this right here, even before Luther shows up, Tempers are really getting hot. I mean, things are really getting hot. At one point, uh, Frederick the Wise and uh, and Joachim of Brandenburg almost come to blows. They start and and actually, one of the bishops, uh, the Bishop of Salzburg, I think, came and had to stand between them before they started beating the crap out of each other. And so this is this is something and that might not have been good for Frederick Dwise. I'm not sure you know what the odds were on that, but Frederick's in his mid fifties and Joachim is in his mid thirties. So the Emperor <laughs> decides he doesn't want the Luther issue brought up before the entire diet because he doesn't want to see this uh, kind of in the hallway fight to be what is taking place on the whole floor. I think part of the character of the Diet of Worms is it's supposed to be orchestrated. Before anything's ever said, everybody is supposed to know already the result. Yeah. Luther is one of those 
issues that no one knows where the direction it's going to go. So, so what the emperor does is, like a, a lot of good politicians, he forms a committee, right? And he, he, he gets a committee and he says, listen, you guys figure it out and figure out what's going to happen here. So the committee is supposed to hear from both sides, but they come back stating that they can't come to a conclusion. Now, so, Aliander, he's getting nervous because there should have been a simple conclusion. No hearing. Declare him a heretic. Right. The fact that this committee couldn't come to that conclusion is letting Aliander know that there is going to be a hearing. Now, there's already within the city of Worms in 1521, early, mid-1521, there's, there's a, everybody is sort of sensing that things are on the verge of revolt. The, the and Aliander himself says, I cannot go out on the streets but the Germans put their hands to their swords and gnash their teeth at me. Uh, he sounds maybe a little paranoid, yeah. but he's convinced that wherever he goes, people want to hurt him because he's uh, opposing Luther. Well, and that's he's, he's not standing alone there. There's a humanist who also wrote about the mood on the streets. Uh, he's talking about a brewing fight between the emperor's supporters and the people, and he writes, A chaplain of the emperor and two Spaniards caught a man with 60 copies of the Babylonian captivity. The people came to the rescue, and the assailants had to take refuge in the castle. So so there's you know, things are getting hot. And it wasn't just Frederick the Wise and Joachim of Brandenburg or whatever. The, 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 everybody is are starting to get hot, and and the the whole Luther question is is really coming to a head right here at the Diet of Worms. So Aleander decides he is not going to wait any longer. He persuades the emperor to allow him to personally draw up the formal formal imperial edict, which would declare Luther as a heretic. So Aleander is kind of working as a lobbyist in the background, writing the legislation. Right. And so so the emperor puts it up for a vote. He says, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a quick vote uh, to, to see where, where things are. Charles floated the idea of having a vote. He would follow the will of the princess, and if they wanted to offer Luther a hearing, he would extend the invitation. So Aleander, the pope's representative, fought against the proposal, most because he didn't know how the vote would turn out. Uh, he went back to his original position that the secular rulers don't have the authority to make a decision on these theological issues. Now, so instead of voting on whether Luther would be given an invitation to the Diet for a hearing, Charles decided to have the princess vote on a proposal to ban Luther's writings without inviting him to the Diet. This is, let's avoid the hearing vote. Yeah, and so what ends up happening is the princes reject that proposal. I think Charles knew that, that was going to happen. Yeah, and now, now, but what Charles has is he has something from the princes that he can go to the Pope and say, listen, the princes are demanding to bring Luther We're to, not going to just ban his writings without a hearing. Right. Because the people felt that, uh, the princes especially felt that there would be a revolt from the people if Luther was condemned without a hearing. Now this has really got to resonate with Charles because he's going through, right at that same time, you have a revolt of the commoners in Spain. So Charles is the king of Spain, but he was born and raised in the Netherlands. So when he inherited the kingdom of Spain in 1516, in, right, he, he brought over a whole bunch of Flemish nobles and clerics to help him rule. And, and then he leaves Spain in 1520 to take care of the duties of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. So when he leaves, what happens? Riots break out and they declare his mother, Joanna the Mad. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> you like to have a name joanna the mad or you know mike mike the mad anyway so he's joanna the mad uh they make her the the ruler the the commoners declare her to be the ruler because they feel like hey you know she's crazy 
we can control that. We can control her, and we'll just run. Things. So April of fifteen twenty one is when that rebellion is finally put down. So we're talking in the contemporary, uh, contemporary with this uh, vote to have a hearing for Luther or not is yeah. When they're the 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 at the same time that the prince, I'm sorry, that the emperor is dealing with the the revolt in Spain. He's being told by the princes in the people Burns, are going to revolt here. Right. And so he says, okay, I got it. I understand. And then Aliander is recognizing this as well. He writes, every day it rains. Luther's books in both German and Latin uh, are showing up in print shops. And like we said, Franz von Sickingen, the, the, he's a violent knight who's actually looking to have a, a, a revolt. A rev- he wants to lead a revolution also. And and he is starting to demonstrate his siding with Luther. Now, von Sickingen, like, to understand why everybody was worried about him, uh, von Sickingen had successfully attacked Worms just a few years earlier with 7,000 men. And then after that, he went against the city of Metz and successfully overthrew the city of Metz with 20,000 men. So he has he has a small army actually a pretty good size army that he can muster for whatever he wants to do. And so the, the you know, all this, this kind of reveals that the knights that uh, Franz von Sickingen leads are independent of their nobles. Yeah. And they're kind of just going wherever there's opportunity to bring threat and punishment. Uh, th- this is interesting to think of because my, my thought of a knight is someone who is just kind of waiting to hear what their noble tells them to do and then they go do it. Yeah, that's not, you know, that's Von Sickingen pres- actually, he sort of saw himself, I was reading up on him, doing a little bit of research on who he was, what drove him. He saw sort of saw himself as being a protector of the common folk. And and so he he was out trying to do good good work for the commoners, and he would bring his troops into whatever situation. If he believed that the commoners were being abused by the by the nobility, he would bring his troops to bear on on that situation. And so this is it's really a sort of crazy time for you know it's hard for us to get our heads around what all the different things that the that the emperor is having to deal with. So he's kind of leading a militia. Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. So now the vote to ban Luther's books without a hearing fails. So in March of 1521, March of 1521, Emperor Charles V extends Luther an invitation along with the promise of safe conduct to attend the diet. Now, the invi- how does the invitation begin? <laughs> yeah, the invitation begins, our noble, dear, and esteemed Martin Luther. Zounds! There's no way to address a heretic, Aleander comments. <laughs> yeah, Aleander. Zounds! <laughs> Zounds. I like that. So Aleander's not very happy about Luther being treated with such respect, uh, being a heretic, declared heretic by the Pope. Now, Charles's understanding that Luther's support among the people is based on politics rather than theology. Most people don't feel justified to be able to make any sort of theological pronouncement on Luther, but they know that the church is corrupt and needs to be held in check by something. And now Luther's the only person at this point who's really offering any structure of checks and balances for the Roman Catholic churches, which is what he did with the open letter to the Christian nobility. He offers... So now if Charles is doing what Rome wants... He's at the same time inviting political rebellion because if he opposes Luther without any sort of theological conversation or political conversation, then he is walking into the mud of politics with the common people. Right. Now, but at the same time, 
Charles has no intention to depart from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. He's a good Roman Catholic. And and uh, uh, later in his life, he actually becomes a monk. He abdicates the throne in yeah. order to become um, private in his devotion. So this, this affects the rules that are set up for when Luther shows up. Now, these are rules that Luther's not going to know about. But Frederick the Wise and his advisors do know about them. And one is there is to be no debating. And then the second one is that he's only going to be invited to the Diet so he can recant his writings. And concurrently, Luther's books were to be gathered together and burned. So so those were the rules that... So is that, he going to accept the invite? Well, you know, Frederick the Wise and his advisors are sort of hesitant. They haven't even extended the invite to... They, they've got the invite. But Frederick they haven't told Luther. But they haven't told. They haven't sent it to Luther, and and so Gregory Bruick, who was the chief political officer to Frederick, he writes down the pros and cons of accepting the emperor's invitation. And then they also draw they draw Spalatin, Spalatin, Spalatin into, yeah. into the discussion. Who is the closest advisor to Frederick the Wise and also a dear friend of Martin Luther. And he's a, he's a, basically Frederick the Wise's chaplain, I guess. He's, chaplain and lead lawyer almost. He and also he's a theologian. He has theological understanding. So he's he carries he's wearing a lot of hats and and he he's involved in the discussion. Now they eventually decide that Luther does they they're going to recommend that Luther comes to the diet mostly because they don't want Luther to be called a coward. So 4 days after the invitation was received in Wittenberg, Luther along with a small group of supporters climbed into a wagon, and started on the 300-mile journey to the city of Worms. And that's where we're going to lead off, leave off today. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up the rest of the story of Luther and Worms. Uh, Worms in uh, episode 22. So let's, say, uh, let's do our sign-off. So thanks to Josh. Thank you to St. Paul Lutheran. Uh, a recognition of our source materials. We James ha- Kittleson, Luther the Reformer. Scott Hendricks, uh, Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer. Uh, Roland Bainton, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. This is a biography that especially places Luther into the context of politics. There's a lot of uh, biographies that will look at kind of basic biographical information like Kittleson's or will be a review of his theological writings. Uh, Roland Bainton's is known as a commentary on the political situation of Luther. Uh, also, Luther's works, volume 32. We really haven't, we didn't use much of Luther's works, mostly the introduction to the, the um, Diet of Worms. In, in, uh, in uh, volume 32 of Luther's works, they actually have the, the, the real source material from both the Luther and his friends, and then also from, uh, from the Pope from the Pope's side. And so you can read both sides and see what they had to say about what happens. And Wikipedia is helpful in this stuff as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, if you want to contact us, uh, you can shoot us an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Let us, if you, let us know if you would like to host a road trip. Or, this is where we go to uh, a bar near you, a brewery. Uh, you invite maybe your men's group or some friends, and we come in and we have a conversation about Luther. Yeah, and then another one is you can you can check us out on our website, graceontap-podcast.com, or catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap Podcast. We do appreciate any reviews you could post on iTunes. It helps us get the word out. Thank you very much. I think that does it. Thank you.